Well, thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, we're, can you believe it? We're all the way up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. By way of review, um, last week Pastor sent us through a, a wonderful, wonderful study. I really got a lot out of it. But Paul's going to do his own review here. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1, and uh, he splits verse 1 in two. Uh, to give us two ideas. So let's look at 1a. Paul says, Therefore, having these promises... You know, this is Paul's natural conclusion to 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18. Now, in that passage, the Apostle Paul wrote about the need to separate from worldly influences so that we can live a close life with God. The commandment to come out from among them and separate ourselves in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, it, it's couple, coupled with a promise. I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and my daughters. That's verse 18 of chapter 6. If we separate ourselves from worldly thinking and the worldly acting, we're promised a closer relationship with God. And isn't that what we all long for anyway? Now let's look at the second part of that first verse. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Um, I think that that's pretty self-explanatory, but let's see what Paul's talking about. This is what we can take away from this. There's a cleansing that God does, only God can do, through our lives, in our lives. But there's also a cleansing that God wants us to do in cooperation with Him. Now here, Paul, he writes about the cleansing that just isn't just something that God does for us, as we sit passively by, this is a self-cleansing for intimacy with God that goes way beyond that general cleansing from sin. This is, a main, this is the main aspect of cleansing that comes to us as we trust in Jesus and His work on our behalf. Now this work of cleansing is really God's work. It's not our work. This is, in a sense, it's, it's like 1 John 1.9. You, you all remember that one, don't you? Say it with me. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you know, there's another aspect of this verse, another aspect of cleansing that God looks for us. Uh, the partici he, he participates with us in our own, you know, with of our own will and our own effort. Not that, not that it's apart from the work of God, but it is a work that awaits our will and our effort. This aspect of cleansing is mostly connected with the intimacy with God and usefulness in service. Now Clark asks a question here. He says. How can those expect God to purify their hearts 
who are continually indulging their eyes and their ears and their hands in what is forbidden and in what tends to increase and bring into action all of the evil propensities of the soul? That's a good question. From all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit is what Paul tells us. You know, we often think of purity before the Lord only in terms of the cleansing and the filthiness of our flesh. But there is also a filthiness of the spirit to cleanse ourselves from. Sometimes it is easier to deal with the filthiness of the flesh than it is with the filthiness of the spirit. You know, during Jesus' ministry, especially in the early part of his ministry, those who were stained by the filthiness of the flesh, such as harlots and tax collectors, they found it very easy to come to, to know Christ. But those stained by the filthiness of the Spirit, such as the scribes and the Pharisees, they found it very hard to come to the Lord Jesus. Our pride, our legalism, our self-focus, our self-righteousness, our bitterness, our hatred, they can all be far worse to deal with than our more obvious sins of the flesh. G. Campbell Morgan writes this, he says, There's a defilement of the spirit which is independent of the defilement of the flesh. The spirit can be defiled in many ways. I sometimes think that the sins of the spirit are more deadly than the sins of the flesh. And then Paul finishes that verse and he says, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul isn't writing about the state of sinless perfection. He's perfecting. Perfecting has the idea of complete or whole. Instead of the state of sinless perfection, Paul writes about a complete or a whole holiness. It isn't enough to only cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Christian life is not only getting rid of the evil, but continually doing and becoming good. And then Paul wants to hit that note one more time. Cleansing ourselves. Note that Paul includes himself among the Corinthian Christians in that category of those who need to be cleansed. Now if Paul includes himself among those who needed to be cleansed, then what about you and me? What about us? Paul was possibly the greatest Christian to ever live. Spurgeon writes this, I suppose that the nearer we get to heaven, the more conscious we shall be of our imperfections. The more light we get, the more we discover our own darkness. That which is scarcely accounted sin by some men will be grievous defilement to a tender conscience. It is not that we are greater sinners as we grow older, but that we have a finer sensibility of sin and see that to be sin, which we winked at in the days of our ignorance. Spur Spurgeon continues and he says, I remember hearing a man who said that he had lived for six years without having sinned in thought, in word, or in deed. Now I apprehended that he committed a sin just then if he had never done so before in uttering such a proud, boastful, and I might even add, 
arrogant speech. Spurgeon continues and he says, But we must take care that we cleanse ourselves and not to concern ourselves with the cleansing of others. Most of the time we are more concerned with the holiness of other people and attempt a moral reformation among our neighbors. Oh, it is easy to find out the other man's faults and to bring whole uh, the whole force of our mind to invade against them. Let's look at verses two through two and three. Paul Paul has an appeal here to open our hearts. He says this in verse two: "Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one, and we have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn." For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, Paul wrote, We have spoken openly to you. Our, hearts, our heart is wide open. You also be open. Then, again in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, chapter 7, verse 1, he dealt with the worldliness that kept the Corinthian Christians from having the kind of open relationship that they should have with Paul. And now in writing the words, open your hearts, Paul returns to that idea that he had left off with in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You know, Paul was completely honest with the Corinthian Christians. Now he tells them that they must also be honest. Be open to seeing the truth about Paul and about his ministry. Corinthian Christians believed a lot of bad things about Paul. That God wasn't using him, didn't have the right kind of image, didn't have the right kind of authority, he didn't have the right power that they, should, they thought an apostle should have. But their problem was not an information problem. Their problem was with their hearts. Their hearts had been open to the world, but not to Paul. Now, in the, in the phrase of chapter 6, verse 14, last chapter, unequally yoked, you remember that passage? Paul told them to close their hearts to the world. Now is the time to open their hearts to him. And then Paul says this, We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. So Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians of what they already know. Despite what some troublemakers said about Paul, they really had no good reason to criticize him. When Paul claims that he defrauded no one, remember that Paul was organizing a collection for the poor Christians in Judea. And he was responsible over a significant amount of money. We remember this from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And then Paul says, I do not say this to condemn. You know, Paul's desire was not to condemn those Corinthian Christians, but to restore the bonds of fellowship that he once had with them. Paul really loved the Corinthian Christians. I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's beautiful language. Paul confronted the Christians at Corinth, but he did not want to condemn them. 
It is possible to confront without condemning. Though those who are being confronted rarely think that's true. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Paul is encouraged by some good news from the Corinthian Christians. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort and I am, I am exceedingly joyful in our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and he holds us of our and he told us of our earnest desire, uh, your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, and so I rejoiced even more. Paul's very happy to hear this news. He says, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Yes, Paul has been bold in his criticism to the Corinthians, but he also uh, was bold in his boasting about them. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in our tribulation. When he told us of your earnest desire, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. Despite the many trials Paul faced, both within and without, he found joy. And a part of that joy was the good news from the Corinthian Christians. Paul says, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Now this phrase, exceedingly joyful, could be expressed as, I superabound in joy. I have a joy beyond expression. You know, some people uh, think that God wants us to endure tribulation with a blank, stoic face. The stiff upper lip, you know that. But God wants us to be more than that. He wants us to superabound in joy, even in our tribulation. Morgan says, God brought comfort to Paul by hearing about the work God did among the Corinthian Christians. No circumstances of personal affliction can dim the, cl- the gladness of seeing souls grow in grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now when Paul speaks of the coming of Titus, he actually picks up where he left off in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. So in a sense, from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, is just one long digression. Led by God, of course, and containing some of the richest treasures in the New Testament. And then Paul says, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side. You know, Paul had a hard time in Macedonia, but Titus, he came to Paul when he was in Macedonia, and he brought some good news, a good report of how the Corinthian Christians were turning back to the Lord Jesus and back to Paul. In spite of all of his frustrations with the Corinthians and in the midst of all of his afflictions in ministry, Paul had real confidence 
And he had real hope because Titus brought him some good news of how things were really going in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul declares that God is the God of all comfort. Now here, Paul is experiencing the comfort through the coming of Titus. And the news, the good news that comes from Corinth. So Paul experienced the comfort of God through a human instrument. Often we turn away from people. With, you know, we turn away from the comfort, comfort that God wants to give us. Outside, Paul says, were conflicts. Inside were fears. This was Paul's life in ministry. It was a life of great blessing, but it was also a life of conflict and fear. On the outside, Paul was constantly in conflict with his enemies, the enemies of the gospel and worldly-minded Christians. On the inside, Paul daily battled with the stress and the anxiety of ministry. Your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, Paul spoke about. You know, Titus told Paul that the Corinthian church, they had not forsaken him completely. In fact, these things, desire, mourning, zeal, they proved that God really was doing a work in the Corinthian Christians. And knowing that was a great comfort to Paul. In chapter 7, verses 8 through 12, let's look at that. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss for us from us for nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that, your, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you! What clearing of yourself! What indignation! What fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, and what vindiction, uh, vindication. In all these things, you proved yourself to be clear in this manner. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him that suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. I know it's a long passage, so let's just unpack that. Paul says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I know what you're thinking. What letter? Well, this is probably not 1 Corinthians. But there was a letter that Paul wrote in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. It's, help, it's, it's helpful if we remember the sequence of events. So, Hang with me here. Listen to this. Things were going badly among the Corinthian Christians. In an attempt to get them on track, Paul 
made a quick, unplanned visit that only seemed to make things worse. The sorrowful visit mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. After the failure of this visit, Paul decided not to visit Corinth again in person. But instead, he sent Titus with a strong letter of rebuke. Paul was very worried about how the Corinthian Christians would receive this letter and whether it would turn them to Jesus or just make them angry. So when Titus came back with the good news from Corinth, Paul was greatly relieved. Paul says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So, that's kind of confusing, I know. But when Paul first wrote the sorrowful letter, carried by Titus, he really didn't enjoy doing that, with the idea of being so confrontational to the Corinthian Christians, even though they deserved it. That's why he wrote, though I did regret it. And at the same time, when Titus came back and reported the response of the Corinthian Christians, their earnest desire, their mourning, their zeal, mentioned in verse 7, well, Paul was very happy for the effect that the, that the letter had. That's why he wrote, though I do not regret it. And then he says, the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while, And then Trapp writes this. He says, In sin, the pleasure passes and the sorrow remains. But in repentance, the sorrow passes and the pleasure abides forever. God soon pours the oil of gladness into our broken hearts. Don't you love that? Do you need that now, dear ones? You need God to pour oil of gladness into your heart. Let's go back to Paul. He says, Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. You know, Paul makes it very clear that the separation between sorrow and repentance, they were not the same things. One can be sorry because of their sin without repenting from that sin. Sorrow describes a feeling, but repentance describes a change in both mind and a change in life. Morgan writes this, Repentance is not sorrow only. It may be accompanied, unaccompanied by sorrow at the time, but sorrow will always, allow, will, will always follow, sorrow from the, for the past, but this change of mind is a great thing. Smith writes, Sorrow alone accomplishes nothing. Peter was sorry, and he denied Christ, and he repented. Judas was sorry that he betrayed Christ, but instead of repenting, he killed himself. Repentance sounds like a harsh word, but in many uh, circles, it is the essential aspect of what the gospel has been. Ha, what the gospel is, it has been called the first word of the gospel. So when John the Baptist preached. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand, in Matthew 3.32. Then Jesus started to to, to preach, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, Matthew 4.17. And when Peter started to preach at, at the day of Pentecost, 
he told his listeners to repent. Acts 2.38 What was it, Paul says, that the Corinthian church had to repent of? Well, take your pick. It could have been any number of things. And no doubt, it also included probably some anti-Paul people who criticized the absent apostle very severely, very unfairly, and the Corinthians did not really defend their godly spiritual father before all of those detractors. And then Paul says this, you were made sorry in a godly manner. You know, Paul made the Corinthian Christians feel bad for their sin. But he did it in a godly way. He used the truth, not lies, not exaggeration. He was honest, didn't use any hidden agendas or manipulation. He simply told the truth in love. Not every preacher or every person can say that they do the same. It, is, it isn't right to try to make someone sorry in an ungodly way. And then Paul says this, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. You know, th- this phrase shows why it's important that to only make others sorrow in a godly manner. Now, you may succeed in making them feel bad. That's the word sorrow. But the relationship that you have with that person will suffer loss because of it. You know, you can win the battle and yet lose the war. Paul wanted to protect his relationship with the Corinthian Christians. So he would only make them sorry in a godly manner. Hodge tells us this, God, Godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation. Does this mean that we are saved by our repentance? No, not exactly. Repentance is not the ground of our salvation, but it is part of it and a necessary condition of it. Those who repent are saved. The impotent perish. Repentance is therefore unto salvation. Repentance must never be thought of as something that we do before we can come to know who Christ is. Repentance describes the very act of coming to God. You can't turn towards God without turning from some things that He's against. Spurgeon says, People seem to jump into this faith very quickly. I am not, I, I do not disapprove of that happy leap. But still, I hope my old friend, repentance, is not dead. I am desperately in love with repentance. And it seems to me to be the twin sister of faith. Sorrow in itself produces, doesn't produce anything except bad feelings. But godly sorrow produces repentance. Now since repentance is a change in both thinking and action, we can tell if sorrow is really godly by seeing it produce repentance. So godly sorrow cannot be measured by feelings or by tears, only by what it produces. So Redpath, he writes this, How sorry do we have to be? What is, it, what is the purpose of, uh, of your sorrow for sin? Is it to bring you to 
trust in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus? It is not your sorrow that cleanses you from sin. It is Christ's blood. It is the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. Has your sorrow for sin led you at one time or another to fling all the burden of it at the feet of the crucified, risen Savior? If it hasn't, anything short of that is what Paul here calls sorrow that leads to death. And then Paul, he says, not to be regretted. You know, this is because godly sorrow does such a great work. It doesn't feel good, but it is good work. The sorrow of the world is different because it produces death. Now, when sorrow is received or born in a worldly way, it has the deadly effect of producing resentment or bitterness. We can regret that kind of sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance unto salvation. That is not to be regretted. Trapp says, A repentance as a man shall never never have cause to repent of. Job cursed the day of his birth, but no man has ever been heard to curse the day of his new birth. Spurgeon says, In repentance there is a bitterness sweetness or a sweet bitterness, what shall I call it? Of which the more you have, the better it is for you. I can say truly say that I hardly know a diviner joy than to lay my head in my Father's bosom and to say, Father, I have sinned. But thou hast forgiven me. Oh, how I love thee. What a wonderful, wonderful language. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. All these things that Paul names showed that the sorrow of the Corinthian Christians worked real repentance. Let's take Take them one at a time. What diligence? Godly sorrow produces and repentance shows diligence. Repentance means turn around. And that takes diligence to stay turned around. If one gives up easily, they can never walk in repentance. Though they may perform acts of repentance. And then Paul says, what clearing of yourselves? Godly sorrow produces and repentance shows a clearing. It is a clearing of that guilt and that shame from knowing what we brought uh, our sin to God and we now walk in the right way. And then Paul says, What indignation godly sorrow produces. The repentance shows indignation. We are indignant at ourselves for our foolish, foolish sin. This is the kind of attitude that makes repentance last. Redpath says, I'm glad that the Bible allows me to get mad, mad with the devil, and to think that I had the audacity, he had the audacity, to pull me down and make me do that sin. What indignation, what fury at sin 
and all the agencies of Satan. And then Paul says, what fear? You know, godly sorrow produces, the repentance shows fear that we would ever fall into that same sin again. Paul isn't writing about a fear of God here as much as a fear of sin and fear of our own weakness towards sin. What vehement desire, Paul goes on to say, godly sorrow produces, the repentance shows vehement desire. This is a heart that really desires purity and goodness and does not want to sin anymore. This vehement desire is expressed through heartfelt prayer and total dependence on our God. What zeal, Paul says. Godly sorrow produces and repentance shows zeal. The ancient Greek word for zeal speaks of heat. We are hot towards God. We're hot towards His righteousness. And we're hot against sin and impurity. Instead of laziness, we have zeal in our walk with the Lord. And finally, Paul, he says, what vindication? Godly sorrow produces and repentance shows vindication. You are vindicated as a Christian even though you have sinned. No one can doubt it because the measure of a Christian is not whether or not they sin. It's whether or not they repent. Then Paul, starting to finish up here, he says, proved yourself to be clear. What repentance when repentance is marked by the uh, preceding seven characteristics that I just mentioned, we are clear of guilt and sin. The stain of sin is gone. We can feel it. Others can see it. Spurgeon says, Happy is that man who has had enough of the smart of sin to make it sour and bitter to him all the rest of his days. So that now, with a changed heart, a renewed spirit, he perseveres in the ways of God, never thinking of going back, but resolved through flood or flame to force his way into heaven to be, by divine grace, master over every sin that assails him. You know, their actions of repentance proved them to be clear. It wasn't words or feelings that proved them to be clear. It was their actions. Redpath says, Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, therefore, is a sorrow that leads to the change of purpose, the change of intention and of action. It is not the sorrow of idle tears. It is not crying by your bedside because you again have failed or in vain regret, wishing things would never have happened. Wishing you could have those moments back again. No, it isn't that. It is a change of purpose and intentions and a change of direction and of action. Now Paul, he wants to be sure they understand him. So he says the words, in this matter. You know, Paul's using godly discretion by not bringing up this whole sordid affair again. From the beginning, there was someone who had done some wrong. He wrote about it, him who had done the wrong. 
and there was someone who had the wrong done to him. He wrote about that, him who suffered the wrong. But there was no need to go back through it all over again. And then he says, I don't do this for the sake of those two. Paul's purpose in writing the sorrowful letter was to take sides, was not to take sides in a dispute among the Corinthian Christians. His purpose was to demonstrate his concern that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul's concern for the Corinthian Christians was evident, but amazing. Clark writes, for all the appearance, there was never a church less worthy of an apostle's affections than this church was at this time. And yet no one ever more beloved. Okay, let's look at verses 13 through 16. Talks about how Titus regarded the Corinthian Christians after his visit. Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for uh, for I boasted to him about you. I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you, and, his, and he remembers that the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. The Apostle Paul, he starts out, his spirit has been refreshed by you all. He's talking about the Apostle Titus. The experience of Titus in Corinth and his report from, from there were sure evidence that the Corinthian Christians had a change of mind. If anything I have boasted to him about you, Paul says. Paul had hopefully boasted to Titus that the Corinthian Christians would respond very well, uh, would respond well to the severe letter, hopefully. But probably Titus was not too sure about that. But Paul's boasting was found to be true. His affections are great for you. Paul's talking again about Titus. Paul assures the Corinthian Christians that Titus loves them more than ever now. Probably Titus, he saw a whole lot of ugliness among the Corinthian Christians and he probably had a little chip on his shoulder because of it. So Paul wants them to know that after all he, he saw and reported about their repentance. Titus loved them even more. He says, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Now is Paul being sarcastic here? No, probably not. He probably simply trying to encourage the Corinthian Christians, showing them that he's convinced of their repentance as a genuine thing. Trapp writes this, Thus by praising them, he further wins them, whom before he had sharply handled. Sweet and sour make the best sauce. They must have had it way back then. Here we are at the end of this chapter. Paul praises the Corinthian Christians. 
And they seem to be in a place of victory. But in the sorrowful letter mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, there was no praise. What a difference. What a difference. The, their real repentance, reported by Titus, commented on by Paul here in this chapter 7. All through this chapter we see how concerned Paul is about his relationship with the Corinthian Christians. This shows that people were just as important to Paul as ministry and he did not want to do ministry at the expense of his relationships with people. We have relationships with our people here at Open Gate Church. After all, we're all ministers. Isn't that true? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, what great news we've heard, not just from Paul about the Corinthian Christians, but great news about our church. We'll be meeting and coming together once again. Bring us together on Sunday to enjoy the fellowship and some ice cream. And, and we thank you, Lord. We look forward to the days when we can get back to what normal usually is. We ask you to bless everyone connected with our church now, Father. Bless your holy name, and we claim it in Jesus' name. Amen.